We'll be now reading from God's Word. Uh, you can find a, a Bible around uh, in front of you. Scripture for today is Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. That can be found on page 940 in the Bibles around you. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and it is my uh, privilege again to be able to share the scripture with you this morning and look at what we have here in the book of Romans. Um, I do want to let you know, uh, so this week is going to be our last sermon in Romans for a while. We're going to pause. We will come back to Romans Soon, but we're going to next week begin a new sermon series, and it's called Flourish, and that is in connection with the capital campaign that we're going to be launching. So we're going to be launching a new capital campaign, and along with that, um, we're going to dive into what the Bible teaches about money, about generosity, and, gen- and, and, and honestly about experiencing the fullness of life. We all honestly want to flourish. We all want to experience life to the fullest. And so we're going to see together what the Bible says about how we can honestly do that. So highly encourage you to come back next week and join us as we dive into that study together. For today, uh, we're going to end this portion of our study of the book of Romans. And here's what we have as we come to the end of this is basically like part one of this letter um, that Paul is writing And it's really structured, in a lot of ways, the whole letter is kind of a problem-solution kind of an argument. And all we've really gotten into so far is the problem. And so it's been, I, I don't know about you, but as we've gone through these first three chapters of Romans, it's kind of depressing, because basically, overall, up to this point, the, the, the big picture is that you and I are awful. Like, we're not good people. We, we, we titled this portion of Romans, chapter 1 through chapter 3, Our Desperate Need. And that's what we've been seeing. And that's what Paul has been laying out. And so today, as we look at these verses um, in Romans chapter 3, what we see is Paul's sort of 
summary of everything he set up to this point. This is point one, and he's about to transition, and we'll get to go there, but for now, what we need to do is kind of summarize, here's what we've said so far, and the truth is, it's not really good. So, um, so maybe this is helpful as we think about this. When I, so when I was a kid, I grew up, um, I was a kid in the 80s, and so for me, growing up, was, and I recognize when I say that, I'm going to isolate most of you because some of you are like, you were alive in the 80s? Wow, that's amazing. And some of you are like, you were a kid in the 80s? Like, uh, but, uh, so for me growing up, and the, 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 that era was all about like um, Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And if those things resonate with any of you, you can kind of like nod your head or something so I don't feel like I'm completely on an island. And so for me, much of my childhood was about the good guys versus the bad guys, right? And everybody fell into one of those categories. You were either a G.I. Joe or you were a Cobra, right? You were either an Autobot or you were a... All right, I'm not alone... You were either a Ninja Turtle or you were part of the Foot Clan. Or you were, there, was, there was clear distinctions. You were either on one side or you were on the other. Now, that's childish, right? That's, that's immature. That's kid stuff. That's action figures or, or comic books. But here's what I've been thinking about lately. I have really been realizing that there's a piece of that that has stuck with me, that I find myself, not in those terms, not with the same words, but I find myself dividing up the world into good guys and bad guys. Now, I never say that because that would sound ridiculous, right? Meet somebody, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Do you have a cobra tattooed on your arm? That would be helpful. No, but, but in my head, when I... When I know people, like, okay, like minor, minor inconsequential sports. Like, in sports, teams are either they're good or they're bad, right? Like, you get that, and, but that's, but whatever. But then, like, politics. And there's, there's the good guys and the bad guys, right? And there's the blue and the red, and one's good and one's bad. And I'm not telling you which one I think is which, because we're not going there. But we, we just, in our minds, we divide up. And, and even beyond that, and maybe even more consequentially, even in relationships, that we have a tendency within ourselves to determine in our minds this person is a good person and this person is not a good person. And we even use that language. We do use that language. Oh, he's a good guy. Oh, she's kind of a bad kid. Like, we we think in those terms. I even found out that there's a Christianese word for this that we can use to make ourselves feel better about it. We call it discernment. And so I'm not judging people. I'm being discerning. But here's what we have to see this morning. What Paul lays out for us in these verses is that If you want to divide the world into good guys and bad guys, that's fine. 
we're all bad guys. That, and look, contextually, Paul's talking to a group of people, first century Jews, who divided the whole world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There was us and there was them. There were God's chosen people and there were all the rest of the nations who were unclean and unholy and they needed to, we, we have to stay away. We've been commanded to stay away. They're bad guys. And Paul says, okay, if you want to say they're bad guys, here's what you have to understand. You're not the good guys here. That all of us fall into the category of bad guys. Okay, verse number nine. He says, what then? Meaning, having said everything that I've said up to this point, and we won't go back over all of the first two and a half chapters Um, If you haven't been here with us, I'd highly encourage you to go online, um, download the podcast, or just listen to the sermons online to get you caught up. But, But he says, what then, based on everything we've said up to this point, does that mean that we Jews are any better off? No, not at all. Which is ironic, because last week what we looked at was Paul started, the beginning of chapter three, he said, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. And so he said, there's, there are advantages to being a Jew. But now he says, but does that mean that we are in some way better off? Does that put us in a better position as people overall? And he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everybody, everybody, falls under sin in the same way. That as far as categories go, there's no separate category for I sin some a little bit, he sins a lot, so he's worse. What Paul's saying is all of us, as it comes to sin, fall into the same category. And then he launches into, from verses 10 through 18, this series of quotations. just here's how bad we all are none is righteous this is how he starts it out none is righteous no not one there's absolutely nobody who falls into the category of being good and he goes through over and over and we'll hit on these individually in a second but just how absolutely bad we all are all right, now, here's something I want you to notice about this and what Paul's doing here, and I think it's extremely intentional. This is a series of quotations from what we refer to as the Old Testament. Um, what his Jewish readers would have known as their scriptures. The vast majority of these quotations, most of them are from Psalms, some of them are from the book of Proverbs, and some are from the prophet Isaiah. One. One is from Isaiah, one's from Proverbs, the rest are all from Psalms, which means this. Almost all of these harsh criticisms come from David, who we talked about last week, describing his enemies. The enemies of the people of Israel, the bad guys. Most of these descriptions 
are descriptions that the Jewish people in hearing them would have automatically connected and in their original context would have connected with the Gentiles. These are descriptions of the Gentiles. These are descriptions of the bad guys. And what Paul is saying here is, this is a description of us. That these verses, these words that you have connected to your enemies, these words that you have applied to other people to say, that's why they're bad and that's why we need to stay away from them because they're bad, because this, this is why we want God to punish them because they're so bad. Paul says every single one of those things is true about you as well. So it says they have become worthless. Their throat is an open grave. Their mouth, they. He started the whole thing by saying both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. What Paul's doing is being very inclusive to say these words that you have associated with how bad your enemies are, they connect to you too. We're all, it's a friendly, happy phrase, we're all in this together. We're all equally horrible. And look how thorough it is. It, it, it reaches through every single part of us, individually and corporately. Look at this, verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We reject God in, in our minds, in our understanding, in the way we view the world, from in, our, in our heads. We, have, we don't look for God. We don't have the mind of God that we would rather look, lean into our own intellect, figure out the way the world works in our own minds, that we intellectually have rejected God. But it's not just our minds. Verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We've rejected God in our actions. That it's not just mentally that we've turned away from God, but physically, in what we do, we carry out actions that are going against everything that God says we should do. That if God says you should live in this way, that we have chosen to live in a different way. It's our minds, it's our actions, it's our words. Verses 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It doesn't just affect our actions, it affects our words as well. And it's not just what we think, it's not just what we do, it's not just the words we say, it even gets into the very core of who we are, our desires, our intentions. Verses 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. They're swift to shed blood. We want to do evil. In their paths are ruin and misery, our paths, our goals, the direction we are heading, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That even in our intentions, we naturally are inclined and run toward what is wrong. That it's not just we think wrongly, it's not just that we do wrongly, it's not just that we speak wrongly. Our very hearts lean towards what is evil. Because we have rejected what is good, we've rejected God. That we've decided intellectually 
that we know better than him? And we've acted in ways that go against everything he's taught us or asked us or invited us into? That the very words we speak demonstrate the depth of our rebellion against God that even within our own hearts, we don't even want to head towards God. We are, in every way, infected by sin. That it's not, it's not just bad habits. It's not just some little hang-ups that we have. What Paul is saying here is that every single part of us bears the mark of rebellion against God. Now this is an important core doctrine of Christianity. And it's often misunderstood. Sometimes there's a phrase that we attach to this. Um, The phrase is total depravity. Don't get hung up on that phrase. Hear the teaching of what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that every human being does every awful thing that could ever be done. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that every part of us is infected by sin. That on our own, we do not have the capability to do what is right. On our own, we don't even have the desire to do what is right. That we are broken, and we are infected, and that infection spreads through all of us. All of us collectively, it touches every single one of us. And all of us individually, it touches every part of our being. Now that's really, really bad. But if this is a problem solution, and that's the problem, then we know the solution, right? If the problem is that everything is really bad, then the way we solve it is by making ourselves better, right? And how do we do that? And how do the Jews do that? And as Paul's saying this, this is how bad it is, then the automatic response is, well, okay, okay, we get it. On our own, we're bad. That's okay, because we know the solution. The solution is we need to follow the law. We need to do what is right. If God's clearly laid out for us, here's the way to live, and we've rebelled against it, then to fix it, all we have to do is go back to living the way God has asked us to live. We need to follow the law. But the problem with that is this. Paul says that's not going to work either. Verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Meaning this, the law, what God has said is what's right and wrong, it doesn't help us be better. It shows us how bad we actually are. So that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, when we look at the law, we hear what God has said about what's right and what's wrong, What that really does, honestly, is just shuts us up. It 
it, it takes away any opportunity any of us could ever have of boasting, of having any level of pride, of saying that I'm better, I'm a good guy. Because when you look at the law, honestly, what you will see is how far short you fall. Not in comparison to other people. Forget that. Yes, if your standard of judgment is other people, then maybe you can make some categories. Maybe you can divide yourself up. Maybe you can say you're better than X or Y or Z. When your standard is God's law, we're done. We don't measure up at all. We believe, and the main, um, what's the word I want to, the the main logical idea that drives most of our behavior is the idea that we need to be better people. If I were to talk to you about the idea of heaven, and over 80% of Americans believe in heaven, and most of those people if you ask them, believe that they're going to go there at some point. And if you were to ask people, why? Why do you believe you'll go to heaven? Who do you believe goes to heaven? The answer most people will give you is, well, good people go to heaven, right? And that makes sense to us, I think, just logically speaking. If you want rewards for your life, which heaven seems like a reward, If you want a reward for your lifetime, then you need to be good enough to earn the reward. So who should earn the reward? Well, good people. The problem with that is, how do you define good? Who determines what's good? Or let me even make it more specific. Who determines who's good enough? Do you believe believe everybody's good? Of course not. None of us believes that. We look around the world, we see evil. We see bad guys. We see people who deserve punishment. But who determines who that is? Who decides who's good enough and who's not good enough? What Paul says here is it's not the law. It's not, well, I'm going to look at the Bible, and I'm going to look at, let's say, the Ten Commandments, or I'm going to look at, um, in the New Testament, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, or I'm going to look at the teachings of Jesus, or I'm going to look at, and I'm going to take those teachings and I'm going to say, how much does your life live up to those things? And I'm going to determine, Paul says, that's not how it works. That's not the purpose of the law. That's not the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of the Bible is not to tell you how to live good enough to earn God's favor. I want to repeat that because that's extremely important and so commonly misunderstood. The purpose of the Bible, the purpose of church, the purpose of Christianity is not to tell you how to live good enough to make yourself right with God. That's not it. The purpose of the law 
And this almost seems counterintuitive to us and the way we think about laws like human laws. But the real purpose of the law is to hold a mirror up to our sin and our depravity. That when we look into Scripture, what we see is not, oh, so I should be, I should, I should, I should. What we see is, oh, I don't. And I'm not. And I can't. Verse 20 is so key. It's probably, and if you look at the structure of it, kind of the summation of all of chapters 1, 2, and this first half of chapter 3. This is it. This is everything I've been trying to say to you, Paul would say. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You can do and do and do and try and try and try and work and work and work and you will not do enough. You will not be able to try hard enough. You will not be able to work enough. By works of the law, you will not be justified. And look at this next phrase because I think it's key. In his sight. We can, I can, you can work hard enough to justify yourself in other people's sight. You can put on a good enough show for other people to believe that you're good enough. You can get yourself into a bunch of people's good guys column. You can work hard enough to justify yourself in your own sight. It's actually not that hard. As somebody who's a chronic self-justifier, let me tell you how this works. Find someone else who's worse than you. Compare yourself, and you're good. (laughs) I'm better than him, right? At least I don't. We've all got that right, and at least I don't. At least I don't. I don't know how you fill in the blank on that one, but you do. There's something in your mind that you use to justify yourself in comparison to other people. At least I don't. I know I, but at least I don't, right? But Paul says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It does not matter what I think of you. It does not matter what anyone else thinks of you. It doesn't even matter what you think of you. All that matters is what does God think of you. And what Paul is saying here is by works of the law, by what you do, by your actions, by your trying, by your trying to be better, working harder, fixing things, being more moral, being more kind, being more compassionate, none of that is enough in light of God's perfect holiness, his perfect goodness, until you can reach that level, you'll never be good enough. You can fool other people. You can fool yourself. You cannot fool God. So, What is the purpose then 
of the law, of the Bible, of this church? Is it literally just to tell us how awful we are? And if so, I'll be honest. Yes, I I try to self-justify myself, but I'm also really good at telling myself how bad I am. So I don't see much need in somebody else telling me how horrible I am all the time. What is the purpose of being told for three chapters here what wretched, awful, horrible sinners we all are? There is a purpose. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, a football coach by the name of Tony Dungy. He he used to coach the Indianapolis Colts, um, led them to a Super Bowl, um, and and was very well known, and he's since retired. But Tony Dungy had a son by the name of Jordan Dungy. Jordan Dungy, and, and he talked about this in his autobiography, Jordan Dungy was born with a very rare um, condition. We'll just use that word. It was a nerve condition that disabled him from being able to feel pain. Now, he could feel sensations, but they did not register in his brain as negative, as painful. So, for example, um, Tony Dungy in his book talked about how Jordan, when when he was old enough, would see cookies baking in the oven and think about how good cookies tasted fresh from the oven, so he would reach into the oven to try to grab the pan and pull the pan out and take a cookie and, and eat a cookie straight off the... and not recognize that he's burning his hand and not recognize that it hurts. He could fall... They, they found out when he was a baby, he would fall out of his bed. Not a baby baby, you don't put a baby in bed, right? But in, when he was a toddler, I guess. He would fall out of his bed and he wouldn't cry. Because he didn't experience any pain from it. Now you think about that for a second. And the first thought I have is that sounds like it would be a wonderful way to live. To be able to go through life and never feel pain? In fact, if I was going to be honest, I would say most of us, that's kind of our main goal in life. How can I live this life and experience the least amount of pain possible? How can I structure my life in such a way, not just physical pain, although that's part of it, but emotional pain? How can I go through life and live as happily as I can and avoid as much pain as I possibly can? But here's the problem. What the Dungies found was that, in Jordan's case, that was a real real hindrance. Because when he reached in the oven and pulled out a pan of cookies, it didn't hurt, but it hurt. He was still burning himself severely. But he didn't have what the rest of us have, which is when we touch something hot, we immediately jerk our hand back. We drop it. We move away. We get as far away from it as we can. He held on. He, he held on tightly because it didn't hurt and he went ahead and he grabbed the cookie and shoved it in and he's burning himself and injuring himself and not even knowing about it. And he desperately needed someone, and in this case, thankfully, he had two parents who had to step in and say, 
Jordan, you can't do that. You are hurting yourself. And they constantly had to watch him. Through his entire life, they had to keep watching him and keep teaching him, these things you're doing are going to harm you. Because without the feedback, the physical feedback, he didn't recognize on his own the damage he was doing to himself. He needed to feel the pain. We need to feel the depth of our separation from God. Not because pain is good in and of itself. Not because we want to live lives where we're constantly looking down upon ourselves or thinking we're awful. That's not the point, and that's not Paul's point. But Paul's point is this. In many ways, we are Jordan Dungy. We live lives where we numb ourselves to the pain that we are inflicting upon ourselves by our rebellion against God. We don't recognize the true depth of our separation from our Creator. And we're doing ourselves irreparable harm. I shouldn't use the word irreparable. I'm sorry. We're doing ourselves severe harm. And we don't even recognize it because we don't immediately feel the pain. We found ways to numb ourselves to it. We compare ourselves to others. We minimize the consequences. We blame the consequences on other things around us. But the truth is we desperately, desperately need someone to come in and save us from the harm we are inflicting upon ourselves. But we are incapable of saving ourselves. We think that we can make ourselves better because we think we're not that bad. We look at our lives and we see some problems, but they're mostly cosmetic. They're mostly surface level. And if I can just fix these couple of things, if I could just be a little more successful at work, if I could just treat my kids a little bit better, if I could just find, finally find a girlfriend, if I could just put these things together, if I could just fix those things, if I could, if I could just work on my temper a little bit, you know? If I, could just, if I could just finally stop looking at porn, if I could just get that stuff under control, then everything would be okay. What Paul's saying here is, we don't need to be better. We need to be rescued. What's wrong with us is not a little thing. It's everything. And it infects every part of us. And we can fix a patch here and a patch there and a patch there. But there's a problem down at our very core. Now, that's the end of book one. And I was prepping it this week and I I just, we can't just stop there. So, 
we're going to kind of peek ahead a little bit, okay? And you'll forgive me, but we've got the, the, the Flourish series coming up, and it's going to be a while, and, and I actually want to look ahead to Romans chapter 8. So we're not going to get there for a long time, okay? Let's be honest. So, so it's okay, all right? And when we get to Romans chapter 8, just pretend we didn't do this today, okay? And just, oh, that's new. I didn't see that. But I just can't. We can't. We can't just leave off there, right? So let's peek ahead. Romans chapter 8. Here's where Paul is going with all this. Because it's bad, right? It's really bad. So look at Romans 8 and start in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. And pause. Everything we've read so far is condemnation, right? Everything we've read so far is you are bad. They're bad, but you're bad. We're all bad. It is condemnation. But Paul says in in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verse 3 is the one, that I really want to focus on. For God has done what the law, what we've been talking about, the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What can the law not do? It can't rescue us. It can't save us. It can't make us better. The law shows us how bad we are, but then it does nothing to pull us out of that. It's weakened by our sinful flesh. We are so unable, because of that sin that courses through every part of us, we are unable to fully obey the law. And the law, by itself, can't do anything about that. But God has done what the law could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned not us, Sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, what the law says is good, that we can't live up to, the righteous requirement of the law, might be fulfilled in us. Who walk, not according to the flesh, not by trying ourselves, not by our own work, but according to the Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. When we recognize, looking at the law, looking at ourselves, how far we fall short, we are not good enough. And we cannot be good enough. And the law, knowing that, having knowledge of how bad we are, does nothing to save us. Pinpointing the problem does nothing to save us, to fix us, to make us better. But God does. He sees the depth of our need. He sees how far we fall short. He knows how far we are separate from him. And instead of leaving us there in condemnation, he makes a way for us to be made right through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the only human being who ever lived according to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. 
Jesus is not described by those verses in Romans chapter 3. Jesus doesn't have to compare himself to other people. He meets the standard on his own. Jesus is good. And Jesus took the wrath that we've been discussing, the punishment that we justly deserve, that we want God in his justice to give to those who deserve wrath until we recognize that we deserve wrath. Jesus took that wrath on himself and he didn't deserve it. But he took it for us. He absorbed the punishment. And he says, now in me, if you come to me, if you trust in me and what I have done, then you can live as if what I have done is true about you. That I will apply my sacrifice onto you. That all of your depravity, all of your sin, all of your inability to measure up, I will cover over. What the law can never do, Jesus says, I will do it for you. We have Romans chapters 1 and 2 and 3 to hold up a mirror to ourselves to show us we have a desperate, desperate need. But it's not so that we will walk away feeling depressed, feeling condemned. It's so that in the depth of our need, we can turn to the only one who can actually help us. And he will meet us there. He will meet us in our pain. He will meet us in our shame. He will meet us in our guilt. And he will give us his grace. And he will give us his mercy. And he will cover over our sin and our shame. And he will bring us into a relationship with the very God who we have rebelled against and fallen so short of measuring up to. This is his invitation to me, to you, to all of us. Recognize the depth of our need. But don't stay there. Turn to the one who can meet you in that need. Let's pray together. We'll have some time to reflect and then we will take communion together. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us and we deserve absolutely nothing from you. God, we see that on our own, we are, we are sinful. Through and through, we are sinners. And yet you are so good to us. That you would sacrifice your son 
to bear the punishment for our sin, and we do not deserve it in any way, and we cannot earn it in any way, and yet you've done it anyway. God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for being a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, and a God of justice simultaneously. God, thank you. God, please help us today to recognize how desperately we need you and help us to turn to you in that desperation. Help us to fall on you. Fall into your arms to feel your embrace. To know that you love us and you have and you do and you will cover over our sin through Jesus Christ. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.